This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English language service. How's it going, Paul? Very well, Matt, and I know what you're looking forward to this weekend before we get this podcast out of the way, and I have to share your excitement in the UEFA tournament. Oh, okay, you're referring to the football, or should I say soccer, where England will be making their first appearance in a championship final for 55 years. You're right, Paul, this has got more of my attention. Wow, it's that's two generations, isn't it? Well, it's it's even longer than I've been on this earth. So, yeah, for me, it's a big deal. And I, I'm sure for like 60 million other British people. Anyway, we should get back to the matter at hand, which is starting, um, well, later the segment I'll be doing will be about Laos and the hidden historic problem of Agent Orange. Laos is no stranger to war legacy issues because of the huge amount of unexploded ordnance remaining from the U.S. secret bombing of the country uh, back in the 60s and early 70s. But it also faces the legacy of herbicides that were dropped on parts of Laos, um, as happened in neighboring Vietnam. I'll be speaking to Susan Hammond of the War Legacies Project, which has conducted a breakthrough survey into the impact of Agent Orange and the unusually high occurrence of birth defects in affected areas of Laos. But first, Paul, I understand you'll be looking at the emerging food crisis in North Korea, right? Yes, indeed. And there's a sad sense of deja vu to this. Yeah, because, I mean, hunger is a perennial that stalks North Korea's impoverished people. And the COVID border closure with China has made matters worse. And it's um, kindling fears of famine. So over to you, Paul. After a springtime of increasingly dire warnings of food shortages from UN officials and even from leader Kim Jong-un himself, this month, North Korea told work units and organizations at all levels in the country of 25 million to fend for themselves when it comes to food. Further reports have emerged of rising hunger in the North Korean countryside, at least partly the result of the closure of North Korea's border with China in January 2020 to combat the spread of coronavirus. Today, I'm talking to RFA English editor Eugene Huang, who has been covering North Korea for us for nearly three years about the evolving crisis in a country that lost several million people to famine a quarter century ago. Thanks, Eugene. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a lovely Friday. The weather looks nice outside. Great. Well, what I want to start with today is to ask you to summarize the recent stages that got North Korea to this point based on reports you've been doing for these last six or seven months. Okay, well, um, the food situation in North Korea is is pretty dire right now. Um, the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, for example, they estimated in a report last month that uh, with the amount of grain that it produces each year, um, North Korea this year is probably going to fall short about two months, which is, you know, that's two months of no food pretty much, and that's pretty bad. Um, the UN Special Rapporteur on North Korean Human Rights also warned in March that uh, the closure of the border with China could bring on a serious food crisis, and that appears to be happening now. Um, 
Additionally, the authorities in North Korea themselves were saying to the people that uh, this could be almost as bad as or worse than the 1994 to 1998 famine, also known as the arduous march. Can you refresh listeners' memory on the so-called arduous march and its death toll and the causes, just briefly to set our people up for a you know for a background? Okay, well, the arduous march or in Korean. That was uh, the 1990s North Korean famine, and it lasted roughly between 1994 and 1998. And that was really brought on because the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and the Soviet Union had been basically propping up North Korea at the time with cheap oil and food aid. And you need a lot of oil to make fertilizer. And so without the oil, they couldn't make the fertilizer, which means crop yields were also lower. And uh, yeah, just basically the whole system collapsed and the economy the centrally planned economy was not, uh, I guess, malleable enough to, to deal with the crisis. And so by some estimates, they say that 10% of the population maybe died during that time. And hundreds of thousands of people also fled to China. But if it's 10% of the people, that means more than 2 million. And you know that sounds very horrific. And I can't believe that right now we might be on the precipice of something similar to that. Yeah, that's scary, Eugene. I was based in Beijing, China, during the latter parts of the arduous march, and that was when groups of North Korean refugees would try to climb the wall at Western or embassies, uh, including Malaysia, South Korea itself, yeah. the UN. And I did take trips up to the border with North Korea, and you could tell that the compare the relatively lush Chinese side of the border, the countryside. Uh -huh. with the denuded brown hills of North Korea where they, you know, cut down too much firewood and, you know, dug up all the edible roots. It was, right. uh, you know, sort of a self-perpetuating uh, crisis, ecological as well as agricultural. So looking forward now, what are, I mean, North Korea has been somewhat hungry for a long time, even after the famine and when yes. the economy picked up a bit, there were always still UN World Food Program uh, programs feeding uh, certain generate like younger kids or lactating mothers, but now we're tipping back towards a worse situation. So, what would be some of these implications uh, for South Korea, for China, for the United States, for the world? Okay, well, I recall. I mean, going back to the arduous march uh, at the time, people were saying that it was really possible that North Korea would collapse, and what kind of things that would bring on the region, for example. So. Um, you know, China wants to keep North Korea there because it needs a buffer between itself and I guess what it sees as, you know, a U.S. client state in South Korea. I mean, if, if Korea were to suddenly reunify or be absorbed by South Korea, then suddenly you have U.S. troops right at the Chinese border, and that's something that they don't want. But then on the other hand, does South Korea really want reunification? I mean, if you were to ask the average South Korean today, they would probably say no, they don't want to take the huge economic hit and have to pay extra reunification taxes or something like that. Um, it would be a difficult time for South Korea. But of course, all of that is talking about a what-if scenario, and we don't, we don't know that North Korea is going to collapse, and certainly we don't have any indications that that's coming. I mean, you know, Kim Jong Kim Jong Un is pretty well entrenched. He seems like he's going to weather the storm even though he's lost a little bit of weight recently. You know, I think he's going to be well fed and still in control of things. So, I don't think that's going to immediately end up in collapse. But 
Uh, what we do know is that uh, people in the region, if this is problem is going to be as bad as the 1990s, then they're going to have to balance their want of North Korea to be denuclearized with how are they going to get aid into North Korea, considering you know sanctions and other other barriers to getting aid to the people that need it. Okay, well, sanctions in theory and actually as written do not affect food trade or aid, but sometimes the money flows and things get tied up in banking sanctions. And I uh, know that you've done a lot of reporting, writing up a lot of stories about the various increasingly draconian and drastic measures they've taken to close that China border. Before yes. the pandemic lockdown, which is now about 18 months ago, how how was the North Korean food situation? I seem to remember a couple of years where there was a building spree in Pyongyang and more restaurants, even microbreweries and pizza places. And uh, all this was going on despite UN sanctions, which have existed for nearly a decade for the most part. Right. Uh, and I think part of it was because Russia and China were helping North Korea in you know evade some of these sanctions. So what has gone wrong specifically? In other words, wh why does shutting the Chinese border uh, hurt so much now? Okay, well, I mean, you're right. Prior to the pandemic, uh, we did occasionally hear about the food prices rising from time to time and people you know, kind of struggling to get by would be what they would say when they're complaining. But you know, since the pandemic and the, the border closed down, you don't hear like, oh, we're struggling to get by. You hear things like, we don't know where we're gonna get our next meal from, and the government wants us to work on a collective farm and, and not be able to eat anything for months. Um, so, you know, this this coronavirus emergency has just been really terrible because it, if you close the Chinese border, then you know that's that's ninety first ninety five percent of total trade volume almost, uh, depending on, from year to year it changes, but it's about 95%. So that's basically essentially cutting off North Korea from the rest of the world. And when you have a food deficit, a two month food deficit, like the UN reported, then, you know, normally under those circumstances, you could import food from China into North Korea to cover the shortages, or maybe some aid would come in more easily with the border open. But with the border closed, which I guess they wanted to keep the coronavirus out, which is good, um, you know, that's devastated entire towns and their economies. So I, I really don't really know what to say other than, you know, what went wrong was that the pandemic happened. Over the past year or more, you've done a series of reports on the government demanding free labor, food, or cash to support national projects. What was the most striking example of that kind of corvée labor in North Korea? Okay, well, I mean, some of the more striking examples that I've seen uh, or that we've reported on were, um, so there was one report about they're renovating some schools, some of which were built as early as the Japanese colonial era, and but the government has no money, so they're making the parents and students donate money for their construction or renovation project. and. Also, they don't have any materials, so they give the students the day off, quote unquote, the day off for the second uh, after afternoon class session so they can go to the riverside and collect sand for making concrete. But the riverside is far away, so they can't pick up the bags of sand and walk back to the school. No, they have to pay to rent a car to, to haul it all back. 
And then on top of that, each class has to make lunch boxes for the construction workers. So it seems like a pretty, pretty high burden on, you know, students that just want to go to school. And, uh, you know, that's that's I don't know how that's a good learning environment at all. Another story that we did was I thought this was particularly extreme was because they were forcing, quote unquote, housewives to volunteer to be relocated to North Korea's bread basket in uh, South Hwangye province for agricultural work. And I say, quote unquote, housewives, because these aren't really housewives. These are the people that are responsible for their family's livelihoods, because it's usually these housewives that run the family business when their husbands are at work earning the government salary that the family cannot live on. Right. But the husbands have to go to work. So the only person in the family that can run the business is the housewife because she technically has no job except for her job is, you know, supporting the entire family. And that's how most North Korean families get by. But they're saying, nope, you don't have a job. Go work on the farm. And so what are those families supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, that could be another sinister way to rein in the sort of grassroots capitalistic market economy that's keeping people alive and, you know, sucking it back up under the state. In fact, we know that some markets have been taken over by state entities. So that's not a that's not a policy that's going to help them out of this jam. Right. Well, thanks, Eugene, for taking time out of your Friday to do this podcast and to share pleasure. your thoughts uh, North Korea, I'm sad to say that we'll probably have to do this theme again, uh, certainly before winter and even maybe later this summer when the real leanest period pre-harvest uh, kicks in. And who knows how many typhoons they might uh, face as well. I certainly hope not, but uh, I think you might be right. Thanks, Eugene and Paul, for that sobering look at the food crisis in North Korea. Now we turn to Laos and the legacy of war. Now, over the past 25 years or so, considerable progress has been made in Laos in clearing unexploded ordnance left over from the Vietnam War. The US dropped some two and a half million tons of bombs on Laos during the conflict, principally targeting Viet Cong supply lines on what became known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail that passed through Laos's eastern and southern border regions with Vietnam. Less well known, is that the US also sprayed toxic herbicides like Agent Orange to shed foliage and expose those same supply lines, and at the same time polluting the soil for future generations. I'm joined by Susan Hammond, who is the founder and executive director of the War Legacies Project, which has conducted research into what has been a hidden problem for nearly five decades. Welcome, Susan. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I think that most of our listeners will be familiar with the impact that Agent Orange use has had on Vietnam. What do we know about its use in Laos? Well, at the same time that the U.S. was spraying the herbicides in Vietnam, they were also spraying across the border in Laos, though that was kept very quiet um, because we were not supposed to be clearly over in across the border in Laos. But over 600,000 gallons of herbicides were sprayed primarily in the southern section from um, Kamun province south to the border with Cambodia along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So at the at the border region between Laos and Vietnam. So over 165,000 acres of this area was sprayed. No, that's what we know. Um, there are official records of that spraying. Okay, but there are things we. We still don't know. There are still gaps in the knowledge. 
there's still a lot of gaps in the knowledge. We we have heard from the red uh, oral histories of ranch ham pilots who speak about how they um, went from Vietnam to Thailand to do spray runs in other parts of Laos, and those are not recorded in the records. So we still have quite a few gaps about how much spraying was done in other parts of Laos, or if any spraying was done, for instance, by the CIA. Right, right. Is that like in the northern regions of Laos, for example? More in the northern central region along Long Chen, where the Vang Pao base was and CIA base was. We know there was some crop destruction done in that area, um, but the majority of the spraying, we believe, is along the Ho Chi Minh Trail because the, the U.S. was basically they were trying to find where the trail was by clearing the foliage, and then they would follow up the spraying with heavy bombing. So your organization has conducted a real pathfinding survey to find, look into the impacts that this, this spraying of Agent Orange on Laos um, has had. Um, so what have you learned from your, from your survey? Yeah, unlike in, in Vietnam, where the Vietnamese government has been um, investigating the issue of Agent Orange and the health impacts basically since the war, in Laos, because the area that was sprayed were the heavily, you know, the mountainous and rural regions along the Ho Chi Minh Trail that were pretty much inaccessible um, until fairly recently. Roads were not built there until within basically the last decade or so. So it was very little was known. Information was not coming out from the villages in this region to Vientiane about um, any of the potential health impacts. It just wasn't known. And so we decided, we thought that, you know, when we were seeing these types of birth defects in Vietnam, believed to be caused by the use of these herbicides, we thought that you have to have the same type of problems in Laos, but we weren't sure. So we decided um, with some funding that we received um, from Channel Cienega Foundation, which is a foundation in California, and then a foundation in Switzerland called Green Cross, to go village by village in some of the heavily sprayed regions of Savannakhet and Salavan province to see, are we finding the same types of birth defects that you see in Vietnam? And we, we did find the same similar birth defects. Uh, so things like um, some very common, you know, somewhat common things like cleft lips and cleft palates and um, severe joint disorders, um, unexplained paralysis, um, some cognitive issues. So the same similar things you see just across the border in, in Vietnam. And these defects, are these being seen in the younger generation? They are. In fact, we found that about two thirds of the people that we that we found in the surveys in, uh, who have birth defects are under the age of 20. So it was um, quite significant. It, I mean, at this point, that's the second or third, maybe even fourth generation if they're if they're in there, you know, quite young, under five. So yeah, it is. And that's similar to what you find in Vietnam as well, that these birth defects tend to show up in, in succeeding generations. And that, that is because of the, the dioxin that was in, in Agent Orange? That's I mean, what the working theory is. I mean, the science is still rather um, controversial and a little bit um, misunderstood, not quite understood, I should say. That I mean, in animal studies that have been done, because you can, you can 
inject dioxin in rats, for instance, and look at the preceding generations to see the impacts. And it's very clear in all the animal studies that are done, no matter what species, you see multiple, you know, future generations impacted with these birth defects from the dioxin. We believe the same thing is happening in humans. And what it doesn't change the DNA of, of your, your DNA. What it does is it's believed to change the epigenetic um, which is the sort of, it's, it's complicated, but in epigenetics, it's, um, it's a layer above the DNA that sort of tells you what to, um, what the genes should be doing, how they should be reacting. And dioxin seems to interfere with that process. Now, based on your survey, do you have any estimate of how many people inside Laos could be potentially affected? Um, from from Agent Orange spraying or, or any sort of uh, idea of how many people may suffer birth defects in the area that was sprayed? Yeah, I mean, we found in our survey that, I mean, we were able to survey 126 villages in Salavan and Savanakit province. And we found on average, each village had about four people with these um, birth defects. And these are villages of about 100, 150, maybe 200 people. So they're small villages. Um, we believe that there's about 800 villages that were under the sprayed regions, because we know in, for the most part where these herbicides were sprayed in southern, in, in the southern part of Laos. And so under those village, under that spray lines were about 800 villages. So if you just calculate, you know, just do that simple math, it's 3,200 or so. Um, but again, we were only looking at the very obvious birth defects. We are not doctors, um, any of our team. And we could, it was, occasionally we would bring um, medical staff from the local health clinic in, but we really could only see what was obvious to the eye. Um, there's plenty of birth defects that, you know, heart defects, for instance, that we, weren't, we would not be picking up on. But I right. would guess it's, but we're probably talking, oh, I don't know, maybe between less than 10,000 people would be my estimate. Um, it's about 1% of the population we were finding. And this is an area of maybe a, not even half a million people. Yeah, it's a significant chunk of the population. Now, the US government has provided assistance to Laos for clearance of unexploded ordnance, and it's also spent a um, considerable amount of money on dioxin remediation in Vietnam. I understand from your report that the US has given no assistance um, in uh, assisting people from the impact of Agent Orange inside Laos. And you make a very strong point that the US government should consider doing that. Um, do you see any sign that the US government is willing to consider this? Yes, I mean, certainly from my senator, Senator Leahy, who's been um, responsible really as on the Appropriations Committee to make sure that war legacy issues around the world are addressed, uh, including the, the funding for unexploded ordinance in Laos. His office is very um, supportive of addressing this issue um, in Laos as well, um, because 
I mean, a lot of the, these villages are only a few kilometers away from Vietnam, and they go back and forth, and they know that people in Vietnam with these disabilities are getting help from the U.S. government. Um, and so Senator Leahy's office is very supportive of this. Of course, there's a whole process that has to be um, gone through about getting an appropriation and then working with USAID about the best way for the funds to be used if they're allocated and working with the Lao government, of course, um, to make sure that they welcome this assistance. So what kind of assistance is needed, do you think? There's a range of things. I mean, these areas are very remote. Um, it's very difficult to get um, any medical care um, to the people in this region. You really have to get, uh, people have to travel from their home village to either Vientiane or in some cases they can go to the provinces. And they, this is a population of, of rural farmers who have very little cash to even get on a bus to make this trip nor do they have any um, understanding really of the medical system in Laos because they're used to, they, the only time they really would see any medical teams tend to be when a, a, a vaccination clinic comes to their village. They are not used to um, going to say the local hospital or do they realize that things can be done? You know, we, we have, you know, children in their, you know, their teens and twenties with a very simple thing like a cleft lip that could be, corrected and they had no idea that that would could be surgically addressed. So there's things like just getting the, the surgery, surgeries um, completed with the people who have disability or birth defects that can um, be addressed that way. Um, physical therapy and uh, just, um, you know, adaptive devices for those who have physical um, difficult difficulties. Then there's just for those who have dis disabilities, for instance, one common one we find is is hip dysplasia, which if you were in, say, Vientiane, you could still probably get a, a job and get around, go to school. But if you are in a rural village where you have to walk more than a mile to the school or your livelihood is climbing the hillsides to plant rice, hip dysplasia is a very um, it's, it's very difficult. So we need, it would be helpful to have programs that provide alternative um, li live, uh, livelihoods for um, those with birth defects who could do quite a few things, but the traditional agriculture is just out of reach for them. And then there's the other problem that we need to address is we don't know if there's any dioxin hotspots in Laos. We, we will never find anything like we see in Vietnam at the Binh Hoa or, or Da Nang Air Base. But it is possible that in the areas that were heavily sprayed, that over the years, the dioxin, which attaches itself to soil particles through the rains could have pooled in some of these villages where we're finding way out of the ordinary um, number of people with birth defects. And it is potentially, potentially there are dioxin hotspots in some of these villages. So some limited testing should be done to make sure that there is not still dioxin in the soil that's that's entering the food chain today. So what is the position of the Lao government on this? I mean, has there been any reticence on its part to draw attention to the problem? Because, I mean, I could imagine that admitting that there's a dioxin problem in your soil 
could could be add to complications of trying to sell agricultural produce and things like that. Yeah, there hasn't been as much of that, for instance, because unlike in Vietnam, where there's a mass export economy, um, in this region, it's pretty much subsistence agriculture that's that's occurring. So that isn't so much of the concern. It's basically it's the lack of information. Um, the Lao government really wanted to be sure that they they had as much information they could about the potential impacts of of Agent Orange in Laos. And as I said, it was very difficult to get to these regions of Laos until fairly recently. So they didn't have the raw data um, about what di what the dioxin could have done um, to the human population there. So. That was the biggest um, constraint we faced. Is just um, they, you know, they felt they needed proof that this was causing a problem, and so that was one of the reasons we wanted to do the survey. Is just to say, okay, what is there? I mean, honestly, we were hoping we wouldn't find any problems at all, um, and then we could. That's one more legacy that the Lao government didn't have to address. Um, but sadly, we were finding very similar um, situation in Laos as we were finding in Vietnam. Well, Susan, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about this hidden problem in Laos of Agent Orange, and I'm sure that will be of great interest to our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Matt and Susan for that look at a hidden problem in Laos. It's disturbing that it's taken so long for the impact of Agent Orange in Laos to get serious attention. Do you think the US government will take steps to address it as it has in Vietnam, Matt? Well, I think that remains to be seen. Um, you know, under the Obama administration, the US government really bumped up the money it was giving to Laos for the clearance of unexploded ordnance. And as we know, the US government has given hundreds of millions of dollars for the remediation of the impact of Agent Orange in Vietnam. But you know, when we asked the State Department a few weeks ago about this, about whether they were going to address the problem of Agent Orange in Laos, they didn't respond to our emails or phone calls, you know, from RFA asking about this this report from the War Legacies Project. But we got a a more um, enthusiastic response from Senator Leahy, who chairs the Senate Appropriations Committee. And he said, we know the use of Agent Orange in Laos is far less than in Vietnam, but we want to work with the Laotian government to determine the scale of the problem and what can be done to address it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. But anyway, that's all from us this week. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio for Asia alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast was edited by Eugene Huang. The series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.